if you have your Bibles, go ahead, grab them. It's uh, John chapter two. We're already into chapter two. I think we're in week five here of our series through the gospel of John. John chapter two. If you're new with us for the first time, you're on a device, you can go to the ESV version. You'll be able to track with us on that. If my voice sounds funny, it's because, well, I have a funny voice. I'm also getting over a cold, so there we go. John chapter two. We're gonna go through verses one through 11. Here's what the word of the Lord says to us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Well, if you remember last week, if you were with us, Jesus was calling his first disciples and one of the men that he called was a guy named Philip, who then called um, his friend Nathaniel, um, who had kind of a run-in with, with Jesus. And one of his first comments, if you remember to Jesus, when Philip told him about Jesus, who was the Messiah, the one who the prophets had been telling us was going to come, Nathaniel's response was like, but he's from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And when Jesus saw him, he confronts Nathaniel. He does it in such a kind of a humorous and gracious way. And um, he says, if you go back here to chapter 1, uh, verse 50, Jesus answered him um, after Nathaniel affirmed that this was the Son of God because Jesus told him, hey, I, I saw you before you got here. You're standing under a fig tree. And then in verse 50, Jesus says after he, Nathaniel affirms Jesus as the son of God, the king of Israel, he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And so what we're gonna see here in chapter two is the first of Jesus's greater things that he had just told Nathaniel, where he manifests his glory by showing his supernatural power. I remember when we got married, and you know weddings are just crazy days. They're hectic, and uh, inevitably, they just, you know, they don't, they don't always go great, right? Something happens, and sure enough, at our wedding, nothing tragic happened. Um, I mean, depending on who you talk to. But I remember we, I remember we got there, and we're just, we're, we, we got married on this big cliff. It was this outdoor wedding. It was, you know, it was amazing, and... Um, 
And so I remember getting there, and I remember right before we, we walked up to stand before the pastor, had our families around and everything, and, and uh, Melissa goes, I was going to say my wife, but she wasn't my wife when she said this. Um, she said, oh, no, I forgot your ring, you know? And so she went to her dad, who was just not super thrilled about the whole day in general, it seemed like, <laughs> if I'm being honest. And I think I'm being truthful when I say that, too. But he gave, he, he gave Melissa his ring. Now, this dude, this dude's fingers are as big as my wrists. And that's no exaggeration. He's one of those guys with the, you know, the baseball mitt hands. And, uh, and he gave the ring to Melissa to put on me. And as she put that thing on it, it was like just <laughs> hanging there. But gosh, a wedding is an amazing day. But there are so many moving parts, right? That's inevitable that something is going to go wrong. Here is the takeaway from that story, if you're wondering, oh boy, here's a doozy, where's he going with this? Um, there was something greater on my wedding day than whether I had the right piece of metal dangling from my ring finger. Um, when Jesus told Nathaniel, like we just read at the end of chapter one, that he would see greater things, he was talking about himself. And that's what we see here as we dive into chapter two. And what we wanna look at today as we unpack this story for a few minutes is, in what ways does Jesus do that? In other words, in what ways does he show his greatness as we unpack this first of his many miracles that are recorded to us through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The first thing we see as we step into this story is that Jesus steps in to remove shame. Jesus steps in to remove our shame. It's significant that John mentions Jesus' first miracle being a wedding, right? That it was a wedding. There's a lot of symbolism here when we remember that in Scripture, um, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom who came to redeem his bride, us, his church. And now we see Jesus coming in, redeeming this wedding, which had just gone south. It had gone wrong. Something in the planning, something with the finances, something had gone awry because they ran out of wine, right? If you've ever thrown a party or an event of any kind, what is the great fear? The great fear is that you won't have enough food for your guests. Me and Melissa get into this every time we do something. Is there enough food, right? Um, so most of us make way too much food. Why do we do that? Well, because it just feels like a shameful thing to run out of food for your guests, right? So we, we make more than we need to make sure that everybody has what they need because it feels just like like the highest level of being like inhospitable. If you're like, well, sorry, you're gonna have to run through the drive-thru on the way home because you know, we're out of, of food. You know? We do this at Thanksgiving every year. We're gonna do this in like a month. Um, you guys are gonna come out to our Thanksgiving Eve Eve service. Uh, we're gonna have pie and we're gonna, have, we're gonna have so many pies that all of you are gonna probably be able to bring home a whole pie at the end of, at the, end of the night. Don't hold me to that. Um, <laughs> But it's because we're afraid that we're going to run out. And I don't know of anything worse in my life if I came to a Thanksgiving Eve Eve service and there was no pie for me. Um, 
But to run out of food, it feels inhospitable. It was even more serious here when you consider what was uh, what encompassed a Jewish wedding feast, which was a major event. It was a major celebration, just like it is for us, but it was a little bit different in Jewish culture. If you think weddings feel long now, right? These weddings would last many, many days, right? And one of the expectations of the wedding was that the wine would be flowing. I read this in a commentary that said, if the wine wasn't flowing the way it was promised at a wedding, if it didn't meet the expectations of the guests, check this out, they, could even be able, they would be able to take the bridegroom to court. They would be able to sue him if there wasn't enough wine, if the wine wasn't flowing the way that it was promised um, in a particular wedding feast. That's amazing. So when Mary tells Jesus that the wine has run out, we should understand the panic that existed in her voice. She was coming to him kind of pleading with him. She was saying, hey, we have like a real situation going on here. So for us, it's just like, well, man, can't we just, can we go to the store real quick? Can we just buy some extra bottles of, of wine? Can we, we can fix this, right? But in this day, it would have been a, a very, very serious thing. And at first glance, what's also interesting is it sounds like Jesus answers her almost rudely, doesn't it? Like when he addresses her as woman. And what we want to understand that this, this phrase, this way that he addresses her, this word that he uses, it was not a sign of, of disrespect like it is in our culture. Like if we said, woman, why are you asking me this, right? It's like, well, that woman would probably have something to say to us, you know, after that. But we don't want to hear it like that. We want to hear this as actually a, a word showing tenderness. We actually want to hear it as a word that, that Jesus would be showing Mary respect. And again, given that it's Jesus, we would assume that anyway. But this would be something tender towards her. Um, and we remember uh, when Jesus was on the cross and he refers to his mother as woman to, to, to the apostle John, saying, John, you're going to take care of my mother after my death. And he referred to her as woman. Again, it was a it was a tone of respect. It was coming out of a compassion and a tenderness. And so that's how we want to read Jesus' response uh, to Mary, right? And what Jesus is driving at here um, when he says, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Well, what he was doing was he was trying to be wise about displaying his power too early in his ministry because the hour for his death and his resurrection had not yet come. And I think what's interesting for us here is that we notice Mary doesn't argue with him. Mary doesn't plead with him. Mary is not pulling, you know, the mom card on him saying, hey, you gotta take care of this. You need to do this. You need to help this wedding party out. She knows her place. She knows who Jesus is. She just tells the servants to do whatever he tells them to do. I think it's significant that when Mary ran into a dilemma here, that her response is to go to the source to then wait in hopeful expectancy, right? She knew something. She knew that only Jesus had the power to remove the shame that the bridegroom would experience if the wine ran out. And then Jesus, Jesus acts. 
And this is a picture of the gospel for us. Remember Hebrews 12 too, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised what? The shame. And he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That tells us something about the heart of Jesus, how he steps in, how he sees a situation, how the situation isn't too small, it's not too beneath him, but that he always does something that is going to manifest his glory. He's always working to show that his power is a transforming power. Jesus steps in to remove your shame. Only Jesus has the power to remove the shame of our sin, of your sin. Only Jesus has the power to heal your soul, to restore your relationship with God. What shame exists in your life that you have had no success in removing? Would you go to Jesus like Mary did, knowing that he can remove your guilt, knowing that he can provide a way for you to live again? By the way, he wasn't obligated to step in and help the bridegroom. He kind of makes that clear in his response to Mary. But here's what I love. And here's what I want us to get away from these first few verses. Is that it was so like Jesus to care so deeply about this husband and wife about this wedding party. It was so like Jesus to step in, to do the thing that he did, to care so deeply. It's so like Jesus to step into your life and remove your shame. It's so like him. It's so characteristic of the heart and the person that we know about Jesus, but that we, we so often kind of twist and get wrong, right? but it's so like Jesus to do what he did, to remove your shame and to refill what is lacking, which is our second point. Jesus refills what is lacking here. Jesus refills what is lacking in you and in me. Jesus didn't simply help the bridegroom save face. He went all the way and provided what the bridegroom was lacking. Said to the servants in verse seven, fill the jars with water and they filled them up. And he said, now draw it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it and then the master of the feast tastes it and he's stunned. Jesus does a miracle. He proved that he has the power to manifest his glory in a way that supernaturally transforms even all the natural elements of the world, of the earth, of our lives. Again, let's not miss the symbolism that's happening here. Jesus points to jars used for purification. And then he has them filled with water that becomes wine. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you something about myself right now. These purification jars that have been in place since the time of Moses are going to be fulfilled in me because that is what I have come to do, 
You don't need purification jars to cleanse you anymore because my death and my resurrection will provide you with the purity that these rituals, by the way, couldn't cover, couldn't provide all the way, right? Jesus refills the wine that's lacking like he refills what's lacking in us. Isn't it a beautiful picture? And miraculously, the water just becomes wine instantaneously, right? It doesn't have to go through any of the aging processes necessary for, for grapes to become wine. This shows the absolute power Jesus has as the creator of the universe. He's not limited. He's not limited by the natural laws of science. Because Jesus is God, those natural laws bend to his will. They change by his word. They transform at his touch. And this should fill us with awe. Who is this person? Who is this person that the wind and the sea obey him? That he tells some dudes to pour water in some jars and that stuff turns to wine. It should fill us with awe. I don't know about you, but I am so happy after I try to fix something and it actually works. <laughs> I'm probably happier than most of you when that happens. I'm surprised because I don't really have control over all the elements required to make something function. And again, less than most of you. Um, I can do what I know how to do but I am so limited. So when I repair things, I'm not looking at my wife when I say this, but when I repair things on occasion and those things get repaired, I just stand back and I go, I can't, I can't believe it. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I painted that. And now it's painted, you know? We all have our thing. And um, it's interesting to see the contrast here, right? Jesus has supernatural, transforming power. We believe that about Jesus, right? He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a great dude. He wasn't just an awesome teacher. He wasn't just a man of the people. He was God. He had supernatural, transforming power over the elements. And more importantly, most importantly, over, over your soul. His power is able to transfer you and me, me, Ronnie Martin, the chief of sinners, a wretched soul, if you guys could only know, from death to life. He makes dead men and dead women alive again. What the heck, you know? We are like those jars that are filled with the new wine of his new covenant to us. Which means those, those sacrifices that the priests would make when they would sacrifice a lamb, when they would pour his blood on the altar to atone for our sins. All these ritual things that, that God gave them to do as a symbol, as a shadow of Christ, it's now coming to fruition. And here we are 2,000 years later looking back on this story going, it came to fruition. Here we are. 
That's our final point is that Jesus serves us the better wine. Jesus serves us the better wine. With Jesus, it only gets better. This was a time of celebration. Jesus comes right in and he says, I don't want the party to end either. I'm gonna serve you the better wine. It's not only about performing a miracle. It's about keeping the party going. Don't you love that about Jesus? Right? Let me get all theological about this, and we are, because that's what we do. Or I shouldn't be up here preaching to you, right? But it's also about Jesus saying, yeah, I don't want the party to end either. Like, he's having a good time. He's like, we're going to keep this thing rolling. You don't really think of Jesus that way, do you? Why don't you? Why don't I? Why don't I think of Jesus that way? As somebody who wants to celebrate, as somebody who who wants to take the joy of an event and a celebration and go, dang, if I keep this thing going, it's going to keep going. And I'm stoked about that. I'm paraphrasing a lot right now. You guys get what I'm doing here. I'm using our language, right? The master of the feast, what I love here too is his reaction. He's stunned. He's stunned. Because most of the time the good wine is served first and then the not so great wine because people won't, you know, be able to tell the difference at that point. Jesus reverses the trend. Oh man, think about that for a second. Jesus reverses the trend. The best comes to those who wait for Jesus. Greater belief comes to those who wait for the greater thing in verse 11. And his disciples believed in him when they saw this. Glory is beheld by those who bring whatever they lack to Jesus. With Jesus comes an abundance of Jesus. And by the way, notice that he doesn't just give them a couple of new bottles of wine to ration out for the rest of the wedding. But he provides enough wine to last way beyond the wedding, right? This would have been a source of income for that married couple. This was like Jesus going to the wedding registry and choosing the most expensive gift to buy the couple. And saying, yeah, I think I'll buy five of them instead. Jesus is extravagant with himself towards us. We get all of him. Not always the things. We don't always get all the things that are available to be given to us. Right? If I told you that, I should be wearing a white suit and we should have this televised. (laughs) Don't let those guys tell you that and don't watch those guys. But we don't always get all the things but we always get all of Jesus, which is the greater thing. We get all of him. He wants us to celebrate and rejoice and toast our lives with him often. Why? Because he is the God who serves the better wine. The better wine isn't the better wine because you drink that wine and it's gone. But Jesus as the better wine means Your cup just keeps running over and over. It's like a fountain that never ends. 
It's a picture of the gospel for us. Jesus steps in. He removes the bridegroom's shame by providing the better wine. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor of Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world by providing himself as what? The better sacrifice. Jesus is always the greater thing. He's always the better wine. So here's what I wanna ask. When you look at your life, and maybe that's hard to do. Sometimes a pastor will say that. I find myself saying that to you guys a lot. When you look at your life, well, maybe it's hard to look at your life. I don't like looking at my life all the time. But if you could do that right now, if you could reflect, if you could look at your life, what is one thing that is just not gone as planned? And maybe it's become the greatest agony or even tragedy in your life to the point, to the point that it, it feels like it, it's been the cause of your greatest shame. Chances are there's something in your life that's like that. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to see Jesus, for me to see Jesus as the greater thing. Because listen, if you are saved, Jesus has entered your life to show you that there is no substitute. There was no substitute here at the, the wedding in Cana. There, were, there was no other option. Jesus was there, Jesus acts, and because of Jesus, everything is transformed. There was no substitute. And when you look around at what is not gone as planned or has just fallen apart, could it be that he is using these moments to step in and remind you that he is the true savior of your soul. He is the true bridegroom who will step in and reassure you that he is the better wine. He is the one that has removed your shame and refills you with what is lacking. This great quote from C.S. Lewis I want to read you. I'm going to read it slow because, you know, they... They talked a little different back then, and this is, you know, Great Britain. But he said this, I think we can be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion, which raises its head in every temptation, that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate, or just chooses to forbid, but which would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. If you're following? And then he goes on to say this, the thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can, or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us. A false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. I wish you could read that. I should have printed that in the bulletin. But let me just go back. Let me read that because I want you to get that. He says, the thing isn't there. The thing that we delight, that we think God is pulling us back from. 
C.S. Lewis is making the point that saying whatever thing that God wants us to have, he is moving to get us that thing for our benefit and his glory, right? But if it's not something that he chooses to give us because the opposite effect will be happening, C.S. Lewis is saying that thing just isn't there. Let me read this last part because it's a little jumbly. He said, whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can or else a false picture of what he is trying to give us. A false picture which would not attract us for a moment if we saw the real thing. The bridegroom thought, oh no, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. The wedding is ruined. This will be a stain on our reputation moving forward. I hate that we have to start our lives like this. Nobody's going to be talking about the wedding. Everybody's going to be talking about the disaster of a reception that we tried to throw when everything ran out. But it turned out to be one of the greatest stories ever recorded because it became the opportunity for what? For Jesus to manifest his glory and show his transforming power. It's not really about the wine. As you look at your life, what is lying in ruins that Jesus can redeem? What are the possibilities as you look at some of the wreckage around you? Two things that I wanna encourage you with as we go. Number one, go to Jesus. It's the most brilliant words I could come up with this week. Go to Jesus. Bring your life to him. Bring your troubles to him. Bring your concerns, your worries, your screw-ups. Bring it all to him. See what he will do. What did it say in the end of the last chapter if you read it? Come and see. Jesus said, you will see greater things, Nathaniel. See what Jesus will do when you bring him those things. Maybe he won't fill up your actual jars to this degree. We covered that. But even when he doesn't, he is filling you with an even deeper trust in the heart that he has for you. You see how Mary didn't even hesitate to go to Jesus and she submitted to his will. She believed that he would act. And by the way, she didn't, she didn't give him a solution. She just told him her dilemma. And he received it with gentleness and care. You think, you think the money has run out. The relationship has gone bad. The job is disappearing. My health is declining. My faith is slipping. My hope is diminishing. And what do we see here? See what Jesus will do when you go to him like Mary did. Because he might not fix your dilemma. But he will be your hope through it. So go to Jesus and then lastly wait on Jesus. Wait on Jesus. Imagine the servants thinking, why should, we, why should we wait for this guy? Who is this guy? To tell us to do what? 
to fill all these jars with water? I mean, I don't think we're getting paid extra for that. You want, us, you want us to do what? Listen to this guy? Why should we wait on him? So often we worry and fret when a circumstance that we should have planned better goes south. And we can't imagine that God would want to help us. I'm the one, we say. It's my fault, we say, or it's their fault. Now I'm affected by it. What does God have to do with it? We think, I got myself in this mess. I got to get myself out of it. Isn't it a gracious thing that that is not the way Jesus thinks? That's not how he thinks. If we could only believe that. If this could be one of those messages, a mediocre message from the Gospel of John for you, where you would walk away with this line, oh, but that's not how Jesus thinks when one of these situations confronts you again. That's not the way Jesus thinks. He doesn't condemn the bridegroom for poor planning. Do you see that? Instead, he acts out of care and compassion. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act, Psalm 37. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you, Psalm 84. The Christian life is this. It is waiting and it is trusting. It's different than our natural inclinations towards wanting quick solutions. We want easy way outs. We want workarounds. But waiting on Jesus allows us to see what he will do, which replaces our focus on the dilemma with greater faith in Jesus. The problem is that we get focused on the wine, but the maker of the wine is with us, waiting to replenish and satisfy us. Jesus is the better wine. Jesus is the most satisfying wine. Jesus is the most lasting wine. If you are saved, you have seen Jesus manifest his glory in your life. You have seen him do a miraculous work. Why? Because you are that miraculous work. You are a walking miracle. Jesus has removed your guilt and shame. He's filled you with his spirit. He's given you himself to be your righteousness, which is the greater thing. Let's lean into Jesus. Let's go to him. Let's wait on him. Let's drink him in. He will refill what's lacking. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for these incredibly gracious and helpful words, learning about how you displayed your transforming power, how you manifested your glory. Lord, would this be, would this be a story that produces a freshness in our soul and a renewed reassurance, Lord, that you are the better wine, 
that you have removed our shame, that you have stepped in to refill what is lacking in us, Lord. We just need more of you. We need to come to you with our dilemmas. We need to wait on you. We need more of you because you are the greater thing in our lives. And I pray that wherever we find ourselves, Lord, and you know where everybody is at and those things in our lives that are just causing havoc and that aren't making sense, messes that we feel like we have gotten ourselves into, Lord, I pray that you would come to us today, that you would remind us of your care for us. You'd remind us of your truth. You've come to make all things new. You've come to be our new and better wine. Because of you, we have hope. Because of you, there is forgiveness of sins when we repent to you. Because of you, we can live our lives in obedience because we have the grace not to, not to earn our way to you, but to make good effort toward becoming more like you because you are the one that is leading us down those paths that make it so. So would you give us relief today? Would you draw us to you? Would you lead us to conviction of our sin? Would you give us renewed life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.